0: Today's reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones. And a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What does a worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set the in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. Whatever is, has already been, and what will be, has been before. And God will call the past account. And I saw something else under the sun. In place of judgment, wickedness was there. In place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment. Both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity and a time for every deed. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal, everything is meaningless. All go to the same place, all come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward, and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that is his lot. But who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Thank you.
1: We now give our minds our attention to your words. And all for your praise and for your glory. Amen. Well, time is an amazing commodity, isn't it? And we talk about time in ways that almost personalize it. So we say that time waits for no man. When we're enjoying ourselves, we say time flies. When we're not enjoying ourselves, we say that time stood still. We comfort those who have been hurt by telling them time heals. One of the growth industries in recent years has been time management. Busy, hard-pressed people want to get more out of their time, and they talk about budgeting their time better. It frustrates them that they can't squeeze another hour into the day. But the fact is, of course, whether you're a prime minister or president, a movie star or a captain of industry, we all have 24 hours in each day, just like the rest of us. Nothing is more even-handed than time. We all have exactly the same amount of time in each day. Now, over the past few weeks, we've started looking, engaging, with this most enigmatic of biblical books, the book of Ecclesiastes. And I am suggesting that our teacher who's introduced to us in chapter 1, verse 1. Our teacher is out to stretch our minds and stretch our faith. He is challenging all our assumptions, all our preconceptions. A breath, just a breath, he cries. Everything is just a breath. Life is a chasing after the wind. And last week we watched as he experimented with all the things and activities that are supposed to bring satisfaction to us. Wisdom, pleasure, intoxication, public works, possessions, sex, hard work. But he draws a blank in his search for meaning. Because the problem is that he was searching for the meaning of life under the sun. And that is his code for life without God. A life that doesn't do God. But when God our creator is taken into account, then life is so different. So he says at the end of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 24, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too I see is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? It's just as the Lord Jesus himself said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, not just possessions, but meaning and purpose, all these things, Will be given to you as well. Well, now our teacher turns his attention to time, to the subject of time. And Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, one of the best known passages in the Bible. It was turned into a successful pop song, as some of our older members may remember. Did you know that President JF Kennedy had been planning to quote that passage in Dallas on the day he was assassinated in 1963? How ironic. A time to live and a time to die. There are two ways that we can understand what our professor is trying to teach us here. And some commentators take the view that he is speaking negatively about time. That time is a tyrant. Time is the enemy. And behind time is the God who controls it. A negative attitude towards time. So they say that they teach us description of what time brings us. Eh, life and death, weeping and laughing, tearing and mending. It, it's not in our hands. Eh, there is a time for these things. And, and when that time comes, there's nothing you can do about it. Derek Tidbull, who has written a commentary on Ecclesiastes, says that according to this view, life is seen as nothing more than doing time. But there is another point of view a more positive point of view, which takes into account the whole sweep of this chapter, and especially verses 11 through to 15, that God has made everything beautiful in its time. That time is not a tyrant, but a blessing. Our teacher is celebrating the variety of life. All the things that happen under the providential care of God. How awful life would be without the ebb and flow, without the shades of darkness and light. You know how we in Scotland dream of a land where the sun always shines, where it only rains at night, and the only woolly jumpers are the lambs in the field. But then we hear about folk who have emigrated to the Costa del Sol, or something like that. And the days there are so predictable, and they say, oh, we miss the snow, we miss the changing seasons, we miss the pleasure of coming into the warmth out of the cold. The ebb and flow, the variety of life. And so, we're going to read verses 1 through to 8 through the lens of verses 11 to 15, that behind life's rich tapestry is the providence of God that he has made everything beautiful in its time. Yes, from where we are standing, we might not be able to understand what's happening to us. We don't want the uprooting. We don't want the tearing down. We don't want the scattering. They leave us feeling unsettled. We say that we would prefer predictability. And we accuse God of messing up our plans and dashing our hopes and leaving us in a mess. It takes time for us To grasp the bigger picture. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard put it like this. Life has to be lived forwards. The trouble is, we can only understand it backwards. We can only understand life as we look back. The fact is, my friends, we are not the playthings of some impersonal fate. We are literally creatures. We are created, we are loved by the one that we can call our father. So let's just join our teacher for a little while as he weaves the tapestry of human experience from time. First of all, there is creation and there is destruction. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot. Birth and death. They remind us of how little we are in control. We did not negotiate with our parents as to the day on which we should be born. And the same goes for our death. It's not first in, first out, is it? We're not in a queue waiting our turn. Some of us die before our time, others live well beyond those three score and ten. We see the same rhythm of, of granting and, and, and withdrawing life in the garden. There is a time to plant and there is a time to uproot. Even on the building site, there is a time to tear down and a time to build. Killing and healing and whatever sphere, they have their time, they have their place. And then in verse 4, we read that there is joy and there is sorrow. Life is a bundle of mixed emotions. People who are always happy, they they, they just don't seem to be able to cope with sadness. I've had people tell me that the hardest thing about their illness or bereavement is the way that other people avoid them because they do not know how to handle pain or grief. The truth is, some of the deepest lessons of life emerge from situations of sorrow there is something wrong with somebody who always seems to be happy (coughs) on the other hand the person who is perpetually miserable is also missing out they might be shy they might be lonely they might be fearful but they are imprisoned and they can't escape both laughter and sorrow are appropriate in their time in their place Then in verse 5 it talks about friendship and enmity. That reference to scattering stones and gathering them is probably a reference to acts of warfare and reconciliation. In the ancient world you would cover your enemy's field with stones. It was an act of aggression, just in the same way as in modern warfare they they spray the fields with, with chemicals, destructive chemicals. So to gather stones was an act of friendship. You were helping your friend to prepare his field for sowing. There is a time when it is appropriate to be friends. But equally there is a time when it is appropriate to distance yourself from some people. I'm thinking about Psalm 1, the first Psalm. (laughs) Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. And the Apostle James tells us in his letter, chapter 4, verse 4, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And I've seen with my own eyes people who are blown off course, as it were, because of their friendship with unbelievers. Of course, it's not that we're told we cannot associate with non-Christians. That's just silly. But the question is, who influences whom? Who is influencing us? Who means the most to us? Sometimes there is a time for friendship and there's a time for separation. In verses six through seven, we really need there's a time to keep and a time to discard. Well, we talk about living in a disposable society, don't we? And yes, as Christians, we have a responsibility towards our environment. We have polluted our land and our rivers and our oceans. By what we're even sending the rubbish into outer space now some of us need to hear that there is a time to search and to keep and to mend. We don't always need the latest gadget, do we? On the other hand, there is also a danger in being too possessive. Hoarding is not necessarily spiritual. We need discernment. When is it right to keep, to conserve, to preserve? And when is it right to dispose and to replace? And again in verses 7 and 8, a time for love and a time for hatred, a time for war and a time for peace. They all have their time. Now, I'm not a pacifist. I do believe that there are times when we must fight for what we believe in and what we hold dear. But cast an eye over history. And I wonder just how many wars really were justifiable. Remember when we went through the book of Esther? And Mordecai's message to Esther When she was swithering about whether she should act to save her people. Who knows whether you have come to royal position for such a time as this. In the providence of God she had become queen for this very moment of crisis in her people's history. God was in control. But she had to act as well, didn't she? She had to act. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Seize the God-given opportunity. Surely a mark of wisdom is understanding the time. There are some people, aren't they? They just never know when to shut up. There's others will tell inappropriate jokes. Even in the church, we can misread the times. We can be so preoccupied with ourselves that we fail to recognize opportunities to influence our community to influence our world our teacher is telling us that by reading the times understanding the times time can be a blessing rather than a tyrant rather than the enemy now remember our teacher wants us to find the answers for ourselves he doesn't want to spoon feed us so he's given us poetry poetry But now comes the prose. Now comes the practicalities. And our teacher raises six points for his students to discuss. Let's look at them. Verses 9 to 11. Life is a burden. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. For all the variety that time brings into our lives, where does time take us in the end? Who would ever dare say, I've arrived. People never seem to reach that rest, that sense of fulfillment, that reward for which they're searching. Maybe we set ourselves goals. Um, There are certain goals that I want to reach by the time I'm 20, or 30, or 40, or 50. How many actually achieve these goals, these ambitions? You wake up one day, and it dawns on you. Boy, oh boy, time has flown by. Where have I got to? Perhaps actually, and I don't know if you agree with me in this, the worst position is the person who has actually achieved all they've set out to achieve, all they've set their heart on, and when they get there, they find it doesn't fulfil them at all. It's empty. What a burden God has laid on men. And we have to ask the question, is is God somehow sadistic? Is he cruel? Well, of course he's not. We agree with this statement that God has made everything beautiful in its time. So is there a reason why he has laid this burden on human beings? The striving against time, the swimming against the tide of time. Why? Why? And our teacher suggests that it is because, as he says in verse 11, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. What's he saying here? That God has set eternity in our hearts. He is saying there is something eternal about us. We are made in the image and likeness of God. And God himself is eternal, isn't he? We are made... For a relationship with God. We reflect the glory of God to the rest of creation. We are his vice regents on earth. So we will never find fulfillment and happiness. Unless it is rooted in a relationship with our God, our creator. There is within us all this eternal ache. Which we long to satisfy. A deep down feeling that want, that must transcend our finite situation. And we all feel there is more to this life than meets the eye, isn't there? So there's always a striving for more and more and more. But if we look for that more, anywhere other than in the Lord our God, we are destined to be frustrated, destined to be disappointed. C.S. Lewis, you know, the author of the children's books, the Narnia Chronicles. He also wrote a very helpful little introduction to Christianity called Mere Christianity. And this is what he says in this little book. God made us, invented us, as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God has made the human machine to run on himself. That's the point. To run on himself. He is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn. The food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. If life is a burden, it is simply because God has withheld our ability to enjoy it, Until we find it in him. St. Augustine put it famously like this. In a prayer. You have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless. Until they find their rest in you. That's why life can be a burden. Here's the second, second thing our teacher says. That contentment is elusive. Verses 12 to 13 taking things further our, our teacher suggests that, that eating and drinking and work should bring us some satisfaction because these are, these are the staple of life eating and drinking and working they are the lowest common denominator if you can get satisfaction out of these simple things in life you're on a hiding to nothing when it comes to the so called higher pleasures and yet do we not all know people who would do anything to escape that prison that they call the office the factory and there are also people who get no pleasure out of eating for them it's just a biological necessity we must realize that contentment is a gift from god and perhaps the only difference between the contented and the discontented is this that there is a willingness from the in the contented to receive god's gift God's gift of life. In verse 14, in the third place, the teacher says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. There is a permanence in God. There is a permanence in God. Lots of people are saying these days, I've heard it on the radio and on the television, that we are living through one of the most unsettled periods in history. If, if you lived up to, let's say, the beginning of the 20th century, up to the First World War, the pace of change was really slow. It, it, it hardly You would hardly notice that time was moving on, that there was any kind of progress. The rate of change now is so fast, we can barely keep up with it. The only fixed point in time is the living God himself. Jesus Christ. The same yesterday, today and forever. Everything the Lord does endures forever. God revealed his name to Moses as I am. The one who is forever in the present tense. Nothing can be added to his work. Nothing can be taken away. Investing in the Lord's work is not like investing in the stock market where the values can go down as well as up. Which is why he and he alone Is to be revered. There is a permanence in God. In verse 15. In the fourth place. Our teacher says that achievement. Is futile. Whatever is. Has already been. And what will be. Has been before. And God will call the past to account. Is time all about history repeating itself? Are we doomed to repeat the mistakes of our ancestors it seems like that sometimes doesn't it you just have to live long enough and you've seen it all before it's all one big waste of time not not if there is a God who calls us all to account not if there is a sovereign God behind history the history behind time itself so history is not a boomerang It's always destined to return to its starting point. Rather, we believe that history is being unfolded. Unfolded according to God's plan. God's purpose. Working towards a final consummation. Here's the fifth thing the teacher says. That the times are evil. Verses 16 and 17. He says that he saw something under the sun. Wickedness. Injustice. sometimes we really do wonder don't we if God is going to judge the world why does he just go on with it why does evil always seem to have the upper hand why are bad people getting away with murder while good people suffer why doesn't God step in and do something all about it well the answer is this that God certainly will act but not according to our time scale verse 17 God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked for there will be a time for every activity A time for every deed. Oh yes, justice will be done. And here's the sixth and final point that he makes. It's in verses 18 to 22. And and really, speaking personally, this is the most disturbing part of the chapter. The most cynical. He says, human beings are no more than naked apes. We're just the same as the animals. We're no more important in the grand scheme of things than an ant. And isn't that the message that we find broadcast by evolutionists like David Attenborough on the television? On the grand scale of things, we're no more important than the animals. We breathe the same air, don't we? We're made of the same stuff. We share the same destiny. Verse 21, who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? The truth is, without God, we might as well just be animals. But the truth is also we are more than a naked ape and our future is beyond the grave and that puts us in a different class, a different category altogether. We may well be made from the same stuff and of course we breathe the same air but God has breathed his breath into the human being. We have a soul, an eternal soul and we are responsible and accountable To our creator. So at the end of the day. It's all a matter of perspective. You can stand and view time. From the perspective of the cynic. From the perspective of the unbeliever. And my friend in that case. You will know nothing of the providential care of a father in heaven. You can complain that life is a burden. That all achievement is futile that the times are evil, that human superiority is just a joke. But if you are a believer, you see things differently, don't you? Time and eternity are married. And therefore, that saying, carpe diem, seize the day, that saying loses the selfishness that is often attributed to those who quote it. And rather, that saying, saying, Carpe diem, seize the day. It becomes an expression of faith in the God who is the beginning and the end of all things, the Alpha and the Omega. In Galatians 4, verse 4, the Apostle Paul tells us, when the time had fully come, God sent his Son. Why did God send his Son? Romans chapter 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time. And therefore we heed the apostle's advice. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 5. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. And will expose the motives of men's hearts. Wait for the right time. Judge nothing before the appointed time. And we have this promise. It's in Acts chapter 3 verse 21. That Jesus must remain in heaven. Until the time comes for God to restore everything. As he promised long ago. Through his holy prophets. He remains in heaven. Until the right time. God has made everything beautiful in its time. So carpe diem to his praise and his glory. Let's pray together. Our loving God and our Father in heaven, time is in your hands. Our time is in your hands. We'd have it no other way. And so we thank you and we praise you. Lord of time, Lord of history, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.